um, we were invited to post pictures of ourselves and our celebrity lookalikes. So I thought it'd be fun to show a couple here. Uh, this one is me. That's Sean Bean, the actor. I don't know if you smile or shake your head or not. Uh, this, he's got more hair. Yeah, I know. Uh, this is Julia Roberts. And who in our congregation looks like Julia Roberts? Go ahead. Marla, you think? You think? Okay. Um, this is Matthew McConaughey, the actor. Who in our congregation do you think? Who do you think thinks he looks like Matthew McConaughey? All right, here we go. Oliver. Oliver's not here today. He doesn't know that I'm showing this. And uh, last week, next picture, last week, Dwayne Singer um, did an Ironman triathlon, swimming and biking and running. So I think his celebrity lookalike is, there you go. <laughs> he doesn't know that I'm doing this either, and he's not even here to see it. Look at that. Now, celebrity lookalike, this whole thing is, is pretty random, right? Oh, there happens to be someone that, that we look like. Now, who are we most inclined to resemble? People in our families. Okay, try this on for size. Next picture. That's definitely not my family. That is, okay. That is my brother Gary um, when he was a kid. And this is my son Peter. All right. So, uh, next picture. This is me about 20 years ago. And, uh, and this is my son, James. Now, the same kind of shirt kind of helps, but look at, look at the chin, the line up the side, and the ear off the right-hand side, okay? So anyway, there we go. Um, and some of you will have pictures of yourselves and of your kids and realize how much alike you look as well. Today, in our study of Ephesians, we come to a section of this book that invites us and, in fact, commands us to be lookalikes of God. God, our Father, and of Jesus Christ, our elder brother, be imitators of God. I mean, now that God has made us his children in Christ, it is natural that we should bear the family resemblance. Now, I confess it's a little artificial for me to isolate this passage of Scripture as a unit for preaching on this morning, because it doesn't stand by itself. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 flow out of and belong to what has come before in chapter 4. And verse 21, which is the tail end of a sentence that starts in verse 18, actually gets unpacked in chapter 6 right through verse 9. And so Ephesians 4, verse 17, right through chapter 6, verse 9, actually is a single unit of Scripture with no clean breaks between them. Remember that Paul didn't write passages of Scripture. He wrote letters. But for our purposes of moving through this book this summer, um, it's, it's helpful to approach it in smaller pieces. And there is a word in these 21 verses of chapter 5, there's a word that gives us permission to treat this together. And that word is the word walk. The word walk is actually something of a theme word in the book of Ephesians. Um, though you kind of lose that in a translation like the NIV. To walk biblically is kind of a euphemism for doing life. And there's a word that other translations sometimes translate uh, live or do 
But the same word in the original is the word walk. And so in the ESV, the English Standard Version, which I use uh, to study, um, that really comes out. Um, Back in chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2, for example, we read this. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then you contrast that with verse 10 at the end of that section. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, this should be our way of life. And chapter 4 verse 1 begins, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received. This is the same word every time. And how are we to walk? Well, in verses 1 to 16, with a rabid commitment to unity and an active participation in the life and ministry of the body of Christ that is the church. And Paul contrasts that now in chapter 4, verse 17, with how not to walk. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. And he goes on from there to call Christians to a renewed mind and loving speech to each other. So Paul keeps using this word walk to draw attention to how we are to live, how we are to move through life, not just drift along passively, but walk with intention. And this word walk shows up suddenly three times in these 21 verses of chapter 5. And he calls our attention to three particular facets of our walk. Now remember again that this passage does not stand alone. Okay, this does not give us a complete picture. Paul has already given us some instruction, which this now builds on. He wrote in the first 16 verses of chapter 4 of our corporate walk, what it looks like for us to walk together as a church, our commitment to unity, each part contributing and doing its part in the life of the whole. Then in chapter 4, verse 17, to the end of the chapter, he turns the lens from the group to the individual, And how your walk and my walk begins with, again, a renewing of the mind, the internal transformation. Um, There's there's no use trying to address external behaviors and conduct before addressing the mind from which our character and our conduct flows. So first, our thoughts, our beliefs, our perspective, and then our behavior and conduct. And the first thing he mentions, again, is our speech in 4 verse 25. Okay, speech that builds up, speech that is not unwholesome or inappropriately angry or cutting with our words, speaking with grace and with forgiveness. And then the scripture just flows right into what we've just read today, and it all belongs together as Paul continues now to describe how we are to walk, not as the Gentiles do, but in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. So now we come to chapter five. And the first thing that we see is that our walk, our living, is patterned after God himself. Be imitators of God. And here Paul is just echoing what he's already said in 4 verse 24. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God. Verse 32, forgiving one another as God forgave you. You want to know how to walk according to your calling, Paul says? I'll tell you. See how God walks and walk like that. John also says it. Whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way that he, that is Jesus, walked. And this makes sense, right? If God's plan is to bring us to the place where we are filled with the fullness of God himself and of his son Jesus, which chapter 3 verse 19 and 4 verse 13 tell us is God's goal for us, 
If that's his goal, then it makes sense that our growth towards this happens by our imitating him. And note also that we are to be imitators of God as beloved children. Not as a duty, but as children who want to be like dad. A few months ago, I had to do some exercises, physiotherapy, because I'd strained a muscle in my leg. And I had this rubber band that I had to put my my foot through a loop of it on one end and attach the other end to the door and and stretch it and strengthen my leg that way. Well, sure enough, on my first time doing it, Renee, my three-year-old, comes toddling into the room and she's going to exercise with dad. So she gets the other band and sticks her leg through it and says, look, I'm exercising. Uh, I have a picture of James, just two years old or so, shaving with me. And Renee also shaves with me sometimes. Our kids love to imitate their parents. And as parents, you know that sometimes um, they imitate us in ways that we wish that they didn't. I remember a particularly trying time trying to put James's shoes on, again, when he was very small. I've always had a very hard time getting my kids' little feet into those little shoes. I can, I can never do it. And I got his shoes on, and we went for a drive, and sure enough, a little voice out of the back seat, I hear him saying, stupid shoe, stupid shoe. Well, I sometimes wish they wouldn't imitate me as much as they do. Because kids get more than a physical likeness from their parents, right? Kids imitate the character and the conduct of what they see in their parents. And I want to have a character and a conduct that is worth imitating. I hope that my children do imitate my character and surpass it. And we who are children of God in Christ, with God's DNA seated in us, We are to imitate him and let his character and his conduct increasingly become our own. Or, to use the walking analogy, we're invited to walk in our Father's footsteps. So how do we do that then? Well, the first occurrence of the word walk in chapter 5 comes right away in verse 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as as beloved children and walk in love. Walk in love. Walk, remember, is a metaphor for living. And so the NIV, which is what we read, captures this when it says, and live a life of love. Because love is not just an event or a series of actions, it is a way of life. And Paul's earlier exhortations to guard unity, to work together, to build each other up, to mind how we speak to one another, all of this is merely the expression of what it means to walk in love together. I mean, love is so central to everything that it means to be a part of what God is doing. Love is the first named fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, so on. Love is the center of the commandments of God, according to Jesus. He said that the commandments to love God and one's neighbor were the foundation on which all of the weight of all the laws and all the speaking of the prophets stood. Love, he said, is the key to the evangelization of the world. When he prayed, he said that they may be perfectly one, united in love, so that the world will know that you sent me and have loved them. Love is what will destroy forever this charge of hypocrisy so often leveled at us Christians in churches. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples. If you love One another. It lends integrity to our witness together. And to walk in love, then, is to imitate God. For God is love, the scripture says. I heard a sermon recently 
where the pastor said this. He said, sometimes we like to say, isn't it amazing that God loves me? No, it's not. What would be amazing is if God for even one second of eternity was to not love you. That would be amazing because God is love. It is in his nature to love. He can't not love. It's not amazing that God loves you. It would be amazing if he didn't, end quote. It is amazing for both, absolutely. God's love is amazing. We even sing that, God's amazing love. But it is inherent in God's nature to love, to express love to his creation, to us. And the more God grows his character in us, and the more we imitate him, the more we will find ourselves walking in love. Now, what does that love look like? Well, it looks like this. Walk in love as... Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Love is by nature self-giving. It's not an emotion, but it's an attitude, and it's the actions that flow out of that attitude. Attitude and actions of self-giving for the sake of someone else. And Paul's going to actually say this pretty soon in our passage next week when he addresses us as husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In Philippians 2, he writes, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's a pretty good definition, a pretty good explanation of what love looks like. Now, if Jesus was right in his assessment that the full weight of all of the law and the prophetic word of Scripture hangs on these two commands to love God and to love our neighbor, and I'm personally not prepared to challenge Jesus on that, then the surest indicator of our own spiritual growth is our increased capacity to love God and to love people. So with that measure, how are we doing? How are you doing? Who is it that requires an active love from you? What opportunities are there for you to love and to do it practically. The scripture says, let us not love with words or with tongue, but with actions and in truth. I can suggest one to you. Um, our sister Elfrida lives now in a senior's residence very near to Sarcy Trail in 17th Avenue Southwest. Um, she's a, a part of us. She'd love to come here, but can't. Is there somebody who would be willing to pick her up weekly or monthly or something? Okay, that's one way to love and you can think of others, and maybe God will kind of open your eyes to something even this morning. But to imitate God, to walk in his footsteps, is to walk in love. It is also then to walk as children of light. Verse 8 of chapter 5, for at one time you were darkness, but now, now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. There is a particular kind of light and darkness that Paul has in mind here. This verse comes in the middle of a lengthy call to sexual purity. Not just in act, but in speech and even in thought. And sexual sin is by no means a new thing for our culture. The religions of the nations around Israel in the Old Testament were centered around war, violence, and fertility. And there were sexual practices that were a part of their worship rituals. 
If the glorification of violence and sex sounds familiar, it's because it's also the dominant religion, I think, of our culture. In the New Testament world, three of the major Mediterranean cities, Corinth and Antioch and Ephesus, to which this book was written, they were famous in the Roman Empire for their rampant sexuality, also connected to or rooted in their religion. Now listen to the line that Paul takes here. He says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Some things to notice here. Let me do this quickly. First, the link that Paul makes between sexual impurity and covetousness and idolatry. All, all sexual sin is covetousness. Okay, it's wanting something that is not rightly or appropriately yours. And all covetousness is idolatry. Okay, coveting something is not just desiring something. Desires are okay. I see somebody with a bright yellow sports car or with great musical ability or a timeshare condo, and I think, I wish I had that. No problem. Desiring is one of the ways that we enjoy things and affirm the worth and beauty and value of something. But when I do more than say, I'd sure like one of those, and form a selfish and unhealthy preoccupation with it, then I covet. Coveting doesn't say, I'd like a car like that too. Coveting says, I want his car, which means I don't want him to have it. I want it. And so we covet. We covet possessions. We covet reputation. We covet spouses, relationships. And that is idolatry. Because it puts both the thing coveted and our own desires, puts both of them above the reign of God in our life. So notice the link between coveting and idolatry and sexual impurity. And then notice also that the text calls us to eliminate all, all impurity. It must not even be named among you, he says. The NIV said there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality among you. It is to have no place in our lives. Why not? Because it's not who we are. We are light, not darkness. We are beloved children of God. We are chosen by God for holiness. And as difficult as it is in our culture, we are to be ruthless in eliminating sexual impurity, covetousness, idolatry from our lives even the hint of it. I had the opportunity recently to address something in my own life. Um, when I was uh, a teenager, 13 years old maybe, I read the book, uh, a book called Shogun, this epic novel of uh, an English sailor in 17th century Japan. 
And I've had the book on my shelf all of these years, and I thought not too long ago, I should read it again. I remember it's pretty good. And I started to read it, and I, I managed to plow halfway through the book until I finally said, I need to put this down. I, I can't read this anymore. This book is riddled with innuendo and discussion about the sexual practices in Japan and, and conversation about it. And I thought, I, I, I can't do this anymore. And I put it down and said, I can't pick that up anymore. And it was gratifying to a certain degree for me to realize that I had a, a heightened sensitivity to that, that I realized what was going on and said, okay, I need to put it aside. But I had to make a choice to either allow it a place in my life or to remove it and not let it have a foothold, to eliminate it. There's a fascinating passage in the scripture, I think fascinating, in 1 Thessalonians 4, or the first eight verses, which begin this way. Again, Paul's writing. He says, Finally then, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So this is kind of early Christian teaching for the Thessalonians. You know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification or holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And then he expounds for the next five verses on the what and the why of sexual purity. And it sounds a lot in that passage like instruction in sexual purity was part of the initial basic instruction for Christian living. We don't think of it as kind of basic ground rules, one of the first things that we learn. But it seemed to be. In a culture around the Mediterranean that was highly charged sexually, a culture much like ours, so, is there impurity in your life? In what you watch or read? In how you look at people? In your speech? In your joking? Is there a perimeter defense that needs to be put in place around your thoughts, around your eyes, around your leisure, around your media? Now, let me say a word to those of us who may carry the guilt of some sexual sin, past or present, or current struggle, this text should not be understood to mean that any single immoral thought or act or struggle disqualifies us from God's kingdom. If it did, not one of us would come anywhere near God's kingdom. What is described here is the person who, as one commentator says, gives himself to impurity without shame or penitence. There is grace and there is cleansing and forgiveness to the repentant sinner. And there is strength, not condemnation, for the struggling sinner. You need to hear that. But the call here is to be ruthless about facing up to sin and giving it no quarter in our lives. Romans 13 says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Or more succinctly, 1 Corinthians, flee sexual immorality. I find it interesting that in the New Testament, there's a number of enemies named to us as Christians, and we respond to them in different ways. When it's Satan or the world, what do we do? We stand, resist. Sexual immorality, temptation, 
flee. Don't stand. Don't try to stand up. Flee. Get away from it as fast as soon as you can. Flee sexual immorality. And kids, when you're at school, notice when other kids talk rudely or jokingly about bodies. And be different. Be better than that. If you're a boy, honor the girls. Treat them with great respect. Girls, don't buy into what TV and magazines tell you about how you should look and why you should look that way. Think honorably about your bodies. Let there not even be a hint of a wrong thought or word about sex and about your bodies because God's way is better, it is more honorable. And all of us walk in love, walk as children of light, and finally walk in wisdom. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. The days were evil. The days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And we talked about that last week, about the central place that the renewing of the mind has in our walk. There's a whole book in Scripture, the book of Proverbs, devoted to what it means to walk in wisdom, painting all kinds of pictures that contrast the wise and the unwise in the realities of daily life. I like this phrase, understand what the Lord's will is. Have you ever wished that you knew what the Lord's will was? That there'd be some really clear direction or answer from him in a certain thing in your life? Well, the answer to discerning God's specific will at any point, sorry, the answer to discerning God's specific will at any point is to be faithful in his general will. And what I mean by that is this. We know what God's will is generally, right? Putting in an honest day's work with integrity, care for the poor, walking in love and in light, honesty, generosity instead of hoarding, encouragement instead of gossip, prayer, feeding our souls on scripture and then putting it into practice. Okay, we know this. Mark Twain once said, it's not the parts of scripture I don't understand that give me trouble, it's the parts I do understand. And that's true for us too. We know, we know what God's will is. And I think that as we give ourselves to that, to doing and being what we know to do and know to be, that clarity on God's will on the specific things will come. Okay, if we do what we know is right and we seek to imitate God's love and light and wisdom and character, we will find ourselves taking the right steps, making the right decisions, knowing better his leading in certain things. And the secret to walking in wisdom is to walk in light and to walk in love. Because love and purity and wisdom all overlap each other, don't they? To be sexually impure as a guy is to not love women either individually or women as a class. To not walk in love is to be fundamentally unwise, for it leads to shallow or broken relationships and an absence of community when you need it. Love and light and wisdom are inseparable. They're not the same thing, but they all happen together. They all have to do with each other. And so we imitate God in these things because God is love, God is light, and he is wisdom 
And the question, of course, is how do we imitate him? We just, do we just roll up our sleeves and try hard? No. Because the text ends with the two great resources that God has given to us by which God empowers us to walk like him. The first is the Holy Spirit. God himself as a present and active reality in our lives. Verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Uh, some Greek grammar for you. This word be filled is in, in the imperative mood, which means it's a command. It's not a, not a suggestion or, hey, have you tried being filled with the Spirit? Be filled. It is in the plural form. You don't see that in our English, but it's a plural verb, which means the command is for all of Paul's readers. It's a command for the community. Church, be filled with the Spirit. The verb is in the passive voice. It doesn't say fill yourself. Be filled. It's God who fills people with his Spirit. It's God who fills his church with his Spirit. This is something that God does, and the command for us is to let God do it. And this verb finally carries the sense with it of not, not of a one-time filling, not a single event, but a continual and ongoing. It's keep on being filled. Let God's filling of you with his spirit be an everyday, ongoing, constant reality for you. And I also like this contrast with getting drunk. Don't be under the influence of alcohol but be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Getting drunk is to lose control, where the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Because everything in our text so far, from chapter 4 onward, this call to walk in love, to give ourselves up for others, to choose purity, to eliminate immorality, to walk wisely, it is a Spirit-led self-control in operation in a life that lets that happen. It's a spirit-led self-control that lets us walk with a firm step and a clear direction. And all of these other things from chapter 4, verse 17 onward, again, futility of thinking, corrupt desires, unwholesome talk, inappropriate anger, sexual immorality, covetousness, and so on, all of these things, they hinder our walk. They trip us up. They slow us down. They send us off in some other direction. But the Holy Spirit in us is a constant voice saying, this is the way, walk in it. And he is a constant fount of strength for us to do it as well. This is the first resource that God gives us. The second is the church, this community of faith of which we are a part. He goes on, addressing each other with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything, to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, our walk, our imitation of God happens in the context of each other, of one another. This whole instruction to love and light and wisdom presupposes the reality of the church and its unity. Paul's whole discussion from chapter 2, verse 11 to chapter 4, verse 16 was about that. Yesterday, like I said, I had the privilege of performing the wedding of Annalena and Jordan. And throughout the day, I was struck by the strong sense of community, those, those family and friends that surrounded them. And it is right for a newly married couple to have 
a community of love and support. It just helps the marriage start on a stronger footing. Well, the truth is, all of life is like that. And so God has given us each other. God has given us each other, this community in Christ Jesus by which we help each other, teach each other, and learn from each other what it means to walk in love and in light and in wisdom, to learn together what it means to imitate God and to imitate God together as a whole church. And in fact, imitating God can only be done in the community of God, in context of community. Because God is himself a community of three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the very fact of trying to live in isolation and independence is right there a departure for what it means to be like God. So imitate God. Be imitators of God. By his Spirit and with God's people, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Walk in light. Let there not be even a hint of impurity, but ruthlessly deal with sin whenever it tries to rear its ugly head and walk in wisdom. Know what pleases the Lord, know his will, and order your life around it. How is your walk? Of which of these three things, love and light and wisdom, of which of these things does the Holy Spirit even now say to you, let me help you with this? What practical attitude and expression of love do you need to put into play starting today? What impurity of word or thought or habit do you have to say no more to? What coveting or what manner of joking or speaking do you need to say no more? What aspect of God's will are you aware of that you need to say today, it will be wisdom for me to align my life to this? Speech or service or finances or work ethic or attitude? One final word, and it is about Jesus. In a moment, we are going to remember and celebrate together the death of Christ, his death on the cross, by which God effected for us the forgiveness of our sins. For it is in Christ and through Christ that we have become together God's children. It is in Christ that we are no longer compelled or slaves or obligated to walk in sin, unable to love, walking in darkness and in the futility of thinking. But in him, we can walk in love and walk in light and walk in wisdom. Why? Because he is himself the expression of God's love. He is the light of the world. He is the very wisdom of God. And so, as dearly loved children of God the Father, who is himself love and light and wisdom, filled with God's Spirit, and together as a family, let us walk in such a way that people can then say, you know that congregation? They look just like God. They look just like Jesus. Let us so walk in imitation of God as loved children. Let's pray. I thank you today, O God, that your call on us to walk in a certain way is not you saying go, 
and sending us out to walk, but it's you saying, come with me and let's walk together. I thank you that you don't give us a job, but you invite us to a life. And I thank you today that you give to us your Holy Spirit as a voice of conviction and a presence of strength to say, walk here, walk in this way. And I thank you that you give us each other. We're surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ who can pick us up when we fall and say, okay, let's keep walking together. Who can encourage us can remind us how to walk, can remind us of your call. Thank you, Lord, for the church. Thank you for this group walk that we get to be on. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that by your death and resurrection and present and eternal reign, that you have dealt with the chains that bind us and the weights that keep us down, and you free us to walk and even to run. Thank you, Jesus, for that. And this morning, now, as we celebrate communion, help us also to fix our eyes upon Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, the beginning of the walk and the destination. Help us to see him and draw courage and joy today. And finally, that you have made us your beloved children. Thank you for that reality. Thank you for the context of your love for us today. And now continue to speak to us. And before we leave here today, Lord, would you show us and tell us how you invite us to be different in our own life, in our own context as individuals today. Show us what you're calling us to specifically in this time. We pray in the name of Jesus who walked perfectly for us. Amen. Amen.